We're the family of God. We, we have a lot to be to talk about, don't we? So glad you're here today. Ladies had a great uh, tea yesterday, I understand. And that's one of those times when I wish I was a lady so I could come and just hear the speaker. Uh, but uh, so thankful for Renee. And it sounds like she shared some things that, that uh, the ladies enjoyed. And we're thankful for that. We are also so thankful to have, as part of our congregation, Lori Hensley who is the director of the Liberal Area Rape Crisis Center. And they have a special event coming up. And rather than me trying to tell you about it, Lori, would you come please and just share with the congregation uh, what's getting ready to take place? Yeah, it, it, is it green? Where's George? Try that. There we go. Good morning. And I want to say we were blessed yesterday. We were absolutely blessed, the women that were here yesterday. What a wonderful time we had yesterday in fellowship, but mostly from the teaching that we received from Renee. What a blessing that was. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. Because I know that Lark DVS is one of your missions. And we are so appreciative of that help that you give us each and every month. And I'm going to say without all of you, it wouldn't be possible for us to do the work that we do in the six counties that we serve. Um, we have um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month is the month of April. So we've been trying to paint the town teal. And I don't know how well we're getting that done. But if you see the ribbons on the lawn at the Memorial Library, those ribbons signify the 123 individuals that we provided service to last year for sexual assault. And I'm going to say it's really hard for me to say this, but over half, almost 60% of those individuals were under the age of 14. Oh, my. So I want you to know we've got a lot of work to do. Um, when I came to the agency, we were serving very few sexual assault individuals. And through a rural grant that we received and hard work that we've done, we are now providing those services. And I'm going to say it's not that we have 123 new people that need services for sexual assault. I'm just saying that we are now getting the word out there and we're able to provide those services. And I hated the fact that every year that our numbers rise, but it's a blessing that our numbers rise because that means that we're serving individuals that in the past were not receiving the services that we provide. But we are going to do an honor walk, and so we're calling it our first annual GLOW Walk, and it's going to be Monday, April the 16th. At 7 o'clock, we're going to gather at the Sunflower Bank. We will be selling, and it's up to you if you want one. It's all free. You don't have to buy anything, but we are selling ribbons, and those ribbons will be something for significance to you. So if it's somebody you know, somebody that you know that somebody knows that has been a survivor of sexual assault, you can purchase a ribbon and then walk. We're going to walk from the bank to the Memorial Library, and we're going to have a big board, and we're going to put all those ribbons on those boards. We've already begun to sell ribbons, and I am so sorry because I'm headed out of town tomorrow. I didn't bring ribbons with me today. But you can buy them at the event if you'd like. We're also selling glow sticks. And then we have ribbons that can go on your car, and those are, uh, uh, what do you call them? They're decals. The, well, they're not magnetic. They come in, they're decals. A clingy, thank you. <laughs> That's what it is, a clingy. There you go. And they go on your car, and it says, I support survivors, and then it has Lark DVS on it. And we would really encourage you to get one of those and put one of those on your vehicle because I know that all of you in this room support survivors because of the mission that you do for us. One thing I want to say is thank you, thank you, because I see the single parent care day information every week in the bulletin, and 
one thing you need to know is that a lot of our single parents come to that single parent day, and I can't say thank you enough for what you do for those women because it's amazing what they tell us. It's just amazing what they say. They come in and say, we don't deserve this. And as we tell them, you deserve the best of the best yes, for amen. what you've been through. So thank you, thank you. As, as my church, and Gary and I are proud to be part of you, and that's what we say is thank you for doing all that you do for us. Amen. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate it. <clears throat> How's everybody doing today? Got some good news for you. Going to wrap up the sermon series next week. I was, I was tempted to just take it throughout the entire year. I think I could. But uh, got some other thoughts that the Lord's putting on my heart. And so we're going to wind it up next week. If you weren't here last week, great Sunday. 127 in attendance last Sunday. And a uh, good crowd here this morning. And, and I'm just so glad you're here. And if you didn't get the opportunity to hear last week's message, so thankful that our our uh, sound booth back there records these messages and makes them available through Tim putting them on the podcast and and so go to that podcast and listen to it. Uh, I, I get a lot of fee- I get more feedback from people listening to the podcast than I do preaching on Sunday morning. That's not to say that I need more from you. It's just saying that that's an effective way. And, and the more the more avenues of of ministry that we can find in a technological world, I think the better off. Everybody will be so uh, we're grateful for those tools that are available to us. But listen to that message from last Sunday. It was just a great day. And uh, but I'm glad you're here this morning. And we are in part 13 of our sermon series this morning, Growing in Grace. Um, for the past few months, I've heard from several, some even here in our congregation who have participated in what is called the walk to Emmaus. How many of you have been on the walk to Emmaus? Four, five, six. Okay. Um, I've never been on one. Uh, however, uh, when we were working inside the prison, they brought a walk to Emmaus inside the walls and had several of my guys who had professed faith in Jesus attend that and then also, once they got out of prison, when we were doing the church in Wichita, several of them participated in the walk to Emmaus. And the reason I'm telling you that is the walk to Emmaus, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is an experience of uh, spiritual renewal and formation that, that begins, isn't it a three-day, short, three days, it takes place over three days anyway, um, with what I like to refer to as basic Christianity 101. Um, it's an opportunity for it, per, its participants to meet Jesus in a new way as God's grace and His love is, is revealed to them through other believers. And for those of you who have been a part of this amazing experience, and you've, I've never heard anyone that had anything but praise for uh, the walk to Emmaus, and for good reason. I, I've never met anyone who went on a walk that wasn't tremendously blessed, and if they weren't saved when they went on the walk, there was a very good chance that they were going to be when they got home from it. Now, having said all of that, and again, I've not been on one, but I want to try to explain to you my 
perception from those who have been what takes place there. What I have gathered is that if you go on the walk to Emmaus, uh, you're probably not going to grow spiritually because that's not the purpose of it. But you will be blessed. Again, my understanding is it's not so much growth that you will experience because the elements of growth are not completely present. However, if there is something in your life that is inhibiting your spiritual growth, you'll be able to identify it as a result of going on the walk to Emmaus. There will be pulling down of strongholds. And as you might well imagine, many of the guys that we worked with uh, who were incarcerated had a lot of strongholds that needed to be to be pulled down in order for them to grow in their newfound relationship with Jesus. Um, not that any of you would need this, but a lot of them needed attitude adjustments. Hello. Um, <laughs> we all do once in a while, don't we? Uh, releasing areas of pride and and forgiveness that needs to take place and and misplaced passions that are identified. And I want to just conclude what I'm saying to you by asking you to hear me on this. If, if your life, if you do not fill your life with elements of spiritual growth when you return from your walk to Emmaus, the issues that you have addressed while on that walk will either return stronger or the new elements will arise that are more subtle and difficult for you to address. What I'm saying to you this morning is there are things that come into our lives that the enemy of our souls puts into our lives to keep us from growing spiritually. He doesn't want us to become more like Jesus. He wants us to continue to struggle. That's why Jesus said, I've come not that you just have life, but have life and that more abundantly. We need to live in the abundance that Christ offers. Amen. So. Those opinions that I'm giving you on the walk to Emmaus have come upon personal observation of guys in prison who've done that. But not just from my opinion. Look with me, if you will, at the gospel of Matthew, chapter number 12. This is not my text. But this is just to lay groundwork for what will be my text. In verses 43 through 45, these are the words of Jesus. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. And when it arrives, it finds the house vacant, swept and put in order. But catch this. Then off it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. And as a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be, Jesus concludes, with this evil generation. So if you're in in the process of, of having Christ tear down strongholds, eliminate pride. Deal with unforgiveness that's in your life. If you don't take those things, have Christ take those things down into your life, and then move on to grow spiritually, those things can come back and affect your spiritual growth even worse 
than what they did before he began the entire process. Are you with me? So what are the elements of growth that you need to have in place that need to be active in your life? Well, if you don't know them, look at this banner. It's called Growing in Grace. Growing in grace is what we've been talking about for the last 13 Sundays. And what I mean by growing in grace, if you haven't figured it out already, is one, you need a growing in grace relationship with God. Secondly, you need a growing in grace relationship with the Word of God. Thirdly, you need a growing in grace relationship with God's family called the local church. And fourthly, you need a growing in grace relationship in terms of your service and your servanthood. In terms of your stewardship, which includes regular giving through offerings and and charity. Now I know some of you, you hear that last part and you think, oh, here we go. Another sermon from another preacher on giving. Well, if that's what you're thinking, you're missing the entire point. The whole point is this. We need to be growing In grace. I hope you're beginning to catch that. Or maybe some of you have already caught it and you're applying it. I I pray that be the case. But if you're not growing in one of those areas, you're not growing spiritually. And if you're not growing spiritually, chances are good that you don't even recognize that you have a problem. Every one of us need to be growing day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year, becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, having said that, how many of you could grow a little bit in order to become more like Jesus? Maybe I should ask it this way. How many of you are already like Jesus? I thought so. So we all have room to grow, right? Well, the problem... That inhibits growth in most people, and I know this is not an official word, but I'm going to make it one, is this matter of lukewarmness. Is everybody okay with that? No English teachers in the house. Lukewarmness. Jesus said, and you're familiar with this passage, Revelation chapter 3, verse number 16 But I like this translation because it kind of just cuts to the chase. Jesus said, but so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't need to really expound on that. You get that. Lukewarmness, when it comes to spirituality, makes Jesus sick. I know that's strong, but that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in that passage. And this is what, again, the walk to Emmaus does for so many. It removes the blinders so that they can see and that they can begin to grow spiritually. Now, if we see things in our lives uh, that are inhibiting spiritual growth, and we don't add the, the disciplines and the, the elements of spiritual growth to make that growth happen, we can slip into a situation worse than when prior to being confronted with the truth. Now, go with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 24, and this is my text. Where does the walk to Emmaus get its name? 
Well, if you have your smartphones, the Bible app, or your Bibles in Luke chapter number 24, we are going to begin reading with verse number 13. Now that same day, two of them, what day? Well, (laughs) that day is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? Now I'm going to give you the translation of that verse according to Terry just a little bit later. And Jesus says, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God, all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who went with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts of all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. Two followers of Jesus. They had an encounter. I've entitled this particular message in this series Encountering Grace. Two individuals walking along the road from Jerusalem encountered Jesus, and that encounter changed their lives and opened their eyes. Now, as the scriptures told us, This little village of Emmaus is a little village some six to seven miles north of Jerusalem. So who were these two travelers? Well, they were two followers of Jesus, one whose name was Cleopas, and the other one goes unnamed. Now, these two men were not just simply talking about the events of the day, but they were talking more specifically about what the events of the day, how it affected 
things that were important to them in terms of their future, the future of the nation of Israel, uh, the future of, of Jesus' followers. They were discussing Jesus. And as they're discussing the events that had taken place in Jerusalem that past week, Jesus shows up beside them on the road. Text tells us that, yeah, they knew who Jesus was, they knew what Jesus looked like, but God, in this instance, had prevented them from recognizing Jesus as being the person who had joined them on their walk. Verse 17 says to us, he said to them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. <laughs> um, this passage is telling us how these two followers of Jesus felt about their Lord. They loved him. They were disturbed about all that had taken place within the course of the past week. So when Jesus asks them what they're talking about, the scripture says they stopped walking. They found themselves faced with the task of explaining to someone of the terrible things that had taken place while they were in Jerusalem observing the Passover. Someone who amazingly enough had apparently not heard and it saddened them that they would, or they were going to have to relive all of those horrible events again to tell this stranger everything that had taken place in Jerusalem that past week. You know, I've, I've, I've seen that happen before. Explaining something that happened to someone and it brings the full event of the, or full impact of the event into clearer focus. You probably noticed that at times on television news, they'll be inter interviewing a witness to a, to a horrible tragedy. And in the midst of the interview, uh, when the person is recounting everything that they saw and that they witnessed, they, they break down into tears. It's just the matter of having to recount everything and relive it. And, and uh, you know, I understand that. There have been times in, in my own life when I've experienced things in, in ministry and and when I'm in the midst of people telling me things that are going on in their lives, I can hold up pretty well. But then when I go home and get my mind off of everything and the impact of, of what they have told me really hits me, I kind of fall apart. Now, you folks aren't supposed to know that. You're not supposed to see that part. I'm just telling you. It, it, it makes it difficult. Then we move to verse 18. And <laughs> this is the part I love. Just to be sure, Cleopas asks, did you just get here to this stranger? Did, did you just get here? The implication is, if you've been anywhere close to Jerusalem, you would have known what's taken place over the past several days. Now, he could have asked it, as I said, according to the translation from Terry, which would have gone like this. Did you just crawl out from under a rock? <laughs> Where in the world have you been? Are you absolutely clueless about the things that have happened this past week? And the stranger says to them, what things? And then they explain to Jesus... What was bothering them? Now, obviously, to us, we're reading this after the fact. 
Obviously, to us, we see that these two knew what had happened, but they didn't know why what had happened had happened. Does that make sense? They didn't know the reasons behind what had happened. They knew the events, but they didn't know the significance of the events. They knew the story. But they didn't know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Well, Jesus had joined them on the road with the purpose of telling them the rest of the story. Imagine this. They're walking down the road and they're joined by an apparently clueless stranger who apparently has been on another planet somewhere and then it turns out that this stranger who they later find out is Jesus himself knows more about the events that took place in Jerusalem than they'll ever know. Boy, wouldn't it have been cool to be Cleopas and his friend? Wow. I mean, aside from being named Cleopas. <laughs> the other guy must have had a terrible name if they give us Cleopas' name. <laughs> but don't tell us the other guy's name. If any of you are getting ready to have a baby, that don't consider that for one of the names. Back to the message. Amen. Jesus then gives them this condensed Reader's Digest version, if you will, of everything that's been prophesied about the Messiah. And he goes from the books of the law in the Old Testament through the books of the prophets. Now, how do I know that it was a condensed version? Because if he'd have told them everything, it would have taken them much longer than seven miles walking down a road to hear all of it. He then reminds them of all the things that he himself had preached. That the Messiah of Israel must be delivered up to death. And so he goes back to Moses who wrote the books of the law. And he begins recounting all of the things prophesied about a future Messiah. All the way through the Old Testament. Walking down this road. And if you recall... Some of the things that Jesus told them, he had preached before. If you go to the book of John, I'm not going to take the time to go there, but if you go to the book of John, chapter number 6, and read from verses 53 through 66 of that chapter, you will find that Jesus had told this same thing, that the Messiah must die. That he must be put to death. And when Jesus told the crowds that were following him that news, the Bible tells us that many chose to quit following him. And those that still chose to follow him evidently didn't take that part of his message seriously. We know this because Jesus' death earlier that week caught many of his followers so off guard that it filled them with sadness to think that their, their Jesus, the one who they thought was going to be their deliverer from Roman oppression. The one who is going to establish the nation of Israel again as being the prominent nation on the face of the earth. He's dead. Our hopes are up in smoke. So Jesus begins showing these two travelers through telling of the stories, through the text of Old Testament writers, all that had taken place and that the Messiah's death had been God's plan 
from before the foundations of the world were laid. (laughs) Now when they get to Emmaus, when they get to Emmaus, Jesus indicated that his plans were to go further down the road. However, they were not finished hearing apparently what he was saying to them, so they urged him to stay with them, and he does. He goes into their house with them. They still didn't recognize him, although by now, he was, because of the things that he had been telling them and teaching them, he was the entire focus of their attention. They, they yearned to know more. And then in verses 30 through 35, we find that Jesus broke bread with them. And as he did, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. To be the same Jesus that they had witnessed die a cruel death on a cross. Witnessed him being put into a tomb dead. They witnessed, they recognized that this was their Jesus. Who had risen from the dead just as the women had told them that the angel had reported. And it so excited them. That they had met the resin Jesus that the rest of the passage says that they left at that very hour to return to Jerusalem to share their experience with the remaining disciples. Let's take up from verse number 33. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them. In the breaking of bread. They wanted to let everybody know. Now it wasn't like they could hop in their car. And zip back to Jerusalem. The seven mile journey. They left their house at that very hour. So excited with what they had heard. And what had been revealed to them. And walked apparently the seven miles back to Jerusalem. To tell the other eleven disciples what had happened. Boy, it's, it, you know, when, when, when you become aware of Jesus' presence, it ought to excite you. When you feel God's presence in a service like we felt this morning, it ought to send duck bumps running up and down your back. Because you're in the presence of the King of Kings. The one who not only rose from the dead, but made it possible for you and I To not have to fear death. You're in His presence. Wow, can you imagine standing face to face with Jesus? You suppose it would change who you are? I'm guessing it would would change us. In ways that I can't even begin to enumerate. It so excited these two guys. That they head back to town. To tell the other 11. Now. How does all this apply to us? Well I want to share with you three things. That we would do well. To be hungry for. Today. The first of those things is this. He replaced their expectations. With truth. He replaced expectations. With truth. Jesus began with Moses. The beginning. He ended with the prophets, the end. These men obviously knew the scriptures of the Old Testament. However, 
Now I want you to catch this. They do what many times we do. They filtered what they knew from the Word through their own expectations. In other words, we find something in the Word and we say, oh yeah, I'm going to hold on to that because that's what I want. And it's very possible that we take it out of context when we do that. You have to go through the Scriptures as a whole and that's what Jesus did with them. Their expectations summed up the expectations of many of Jesus' followers. We were hoping that this prophet who worked miracles in our midst would overcome the Romans and would place Israel again in its position of world power. Now I find it interesting that the Word says that Jesus gently rebuked them. And the question when I read that is, why rebuke someone simply because they didn't understand? It's because their understanding was based upon filters that they had placed upon their understanding. Now, I'm going to explain that to you. When we approach the Scriptures, as I said, we shouldn't rely on preconceived notions. And that's the error that Jesus was trying to correct with these two men. When we do that, when we should hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, how, as he said to them, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. This is what happens when we approach the scriptures with preconceived notions. How did Jesus overcome those wrong expectations and preconceived notions of these followers? He began with Genesis whose writer was Moses, and ended with Malachi. And he didn't pull out just one obscure statement like many of us often do. He didn't do that. He didn't create a brief, a belief system from just one statement that he found. He was saying to them, guys, this has been the plan all along. It's taught in Genesis. Moses said in Genesis something about his, the first prophecy that we know of the Messiah, about the seed of the woman having his heel bruised by Satan. Genesis 3.15. It's taught in Exodus. Jesus was the pillar of fire by day, or by night, and a pillar of cloud by day. It's taught throughout the, in every book of the Bible. About a suffering kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. What I'm saying to you friends, it's the entirety of scripture that gives you the interpretation of what the scripture wants to say to you. You just can't pull out bits and pieces that, that, that scratch your back, that scratch your itch, and form a doctrine out of it. You have to beware of one who takes a statement or two uh, from Scripture and tries to make a doctrine from it. The word doctrine itself means truth. And God gives us His truth by systems. And if you don't know what the Scriptures say, and I'm talking about all the Scriptures, then you can't understand the truth of God, period. If you don't get into the Scriptures and learn them systematically... You might as well say, okay, Satan, deceive me with something of this that I'm, I'm not willing to see. Wow, that only got one amen, Ryan. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't take the Scriptures as a whole, 
You can pull out Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 39, which says they were stoned. And you know what you can do with that. You need to be careful. You need to take the whole thing as one. Now let me bring in another application here before I move on to my second point. One of the most defeating things to believers in Jesus is failed expectations. You know, we go into high school, or at least I did, with certain expectations. We join a church with certain expectations. We choose a college with certain expectations. The same with our marriages, our career, our, our retirement. Eventually we, we come to that place in retirement and we think, okay, this is what I'm going to expect in my life when I'm retired. This is what I'm wanting it to look like. Right? Many have gone into a ministry or taken upon themselves a church position with expectations. Let me just tell you that all disillusionment in service that takes place in the church, in troubled marriages, in struggling careers, in bad education experiences, can be traced back to failed expectations. That's why so many fall into the trap of thinking there's got to be a better way to live where the grass is greener. That's a, that's a stupid expectation to think that the grass is going to be greener somewhere else. How many marriages have ended? Because one or the other partner decided the grass has got to be greener somewhere else. With someone else. Only to find that the same problems that came into the marriage that they were a part of the first time have a way of cropping up their ugly head again in the second marriage. Because one of the people in the marriage is still the same person. Amazing how that works, isn't it? How many of you want me to move on? Wow. None of this is in my notes, so... When you, when you live by expectations, you live with constant disappointment. But I'm here to tell you this morning that you can live being surrendered to the master of the universe and you can really live this adventure called life. Surrender your expectations to His reality. When you volunteer for that position in the church, when you accept that post and your eyes are upon Jesus, just simply tell Him, Jesus, I, I don't know what you're going to do with this pressure on my life, but I know that it will be good because I trust you. I, I don't know what you're wanting to accomplish in my life or in the lives of others, but I trust you. So God, you move as you will and use me for your glory, whatever that looks like. God wants us. Well, let me say it this way before I get there. Oh, Jesus, help me. I don't like being without a script. God looks and He sees what I'm going to call a line in our hearts. And, and, and what, that, what that line looks like is it's a line where you stop representing Him and stop, start representing yourself. Does that make sense? 
We like to believe that such a line doesn't exist. But it does. And God wants to move that line far away. And the only way that he can do that is to challenge us with this thing called life. Let me just ask, take a quick survey. How many of you and your life has gone exactly as you thought it was going to? Point proven. God challenges us with things like persecution. He challenges us with being ridiculed for our faith. He challenges us uh, with, with opposition. He challenges us with things like rejection and and, and pain and disappointments. So we're challenged. And if we respond properly, God's going to move that part of that line that represents us. He's going to move it further and further away so that he is the one whose needs are being represented. I, I know that's a stupid way of explaining that, but that's the best I can do. If I'd have thought about it a little more, I'd have done something better. But friends, living by expectation typically means that we don't expect our lives to be challenged or our line to be challenged. God is going to allow challenges that will so differ from our expectations that it won't even vaguely resemble it. Very practical terms, I would say it looks like this. Husbands, commit yourself to God. Commit yourself to God. Say, God, I don't, I don't know what you're going to do in my marriage or, or what we are going to face in our marriage, but Lord, here's what I want you to do. Whatever you do, may the end result, may be, may the end result be me looking like you. And, and husbands, lest you think I'm picking on you, I'm not. Wives, surrender yourselves to the master and say, I don't know what's going to happen. But Father, whatever it is, Use it to shape me in love and wisdom and service and humility. Employees, it applies the same thing. Students, it applies. Families, if you'll do that, you'll find that God will delight you every day in wonderful ways because God always honors people who trust in Him. There, that's what I wanted to say. Point number two. And again, everybody said amen. Jesus replaced their confusion with vision. Jesus explained to all of them that it had been prophesied and spoken throughout Scripture. They understood what was happening. He showed them a greater plan, something that was more wonderful than Israel being a world power. He showed them the salvation of people of all nations. He, got, he shared with them the forgiveness of sin. He showed them the kingdom of God. He raised their vision... From an earthly vision to a divine vision. Let me just say to you this morning that I understand the challenges that we have. But I also have to tell you, and this is important. We need to spend much more time thinking and acting and responding with a divine vision. As I like to call it, kingdom thinking. If we're going to complete the mission that Jesus Christ has called us to complete. Things that happen in our world... We need to begin viewing those things with much more of a kingdom mindset than what we presently do. 
Oh, I hear the news every once in a while, news from around the globe that, that is greatly troubling. And we need to start hearing and understanding those things that are happening with this mindset. Everything's happening just as God said it was going to happen. I want you to understand something. When something terrible happens in our world, God sitting on the throne and Jesus at his right hand don't start wringing their hands and say, oh, what are we going to do now? God's got this. He's in control. Nothing happens, friends, that is not within His plan. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. It may not sound like it. But God's got a plan and He's going to work that plan to perfect completion. Jesus took these travelers' eyes from the earthly to the divine. And He wants to do that with a lot of us today. Lastly, he replaced their sadness with faith. Scriptures say he took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. Now, these followers of Jesus. I want you to notice this. They, they, they still didn't get the whole picture until Jesus broke bread with them. That's more significant than what you might think. If you're thinking, I, I, I don't get what you're saying, Terry, let me tell you what. It's a beautiful picture of having our eyes opened, and here's why. Jesus was teaching about bread once. It's found back in the book of John, chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, where it says, Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I am the bread. I am the bread. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. Woo! When the, excuse me. When the disciples met for the Last Supper, Jesus also talked about bread there. It's found in Matthew chapter number 26, verse number 26. There he says these words. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. This is my body. These men walking home that day on the road, they knew the scriptures, but they had to have their filters removed. They knew what Moses and the prophets had taught. They, but they had to begin to think heavenly instead of earthly. And they didn't get it until Jesus broke bread. And in so doing, he reminded them... Of his salvation. We're told that there are many in Christianity and the church today. Who hope to benefit from what I call closeness. Now here's how I think about closeness. They are hoping that going to church and acting the part. Is being close enough to the things of God. 
to get them into heaven. But they've not partaken of the living bread. The living bread instills life. It opens eyes. Those who think that all of those things that I just described is enough to get them into heaven, they've not trusted and called upon Jesus, so their eyes remain closed to what Jesus really wants them to see. Listen, I I know that every one of us have this hope inside of us that what we are doing is enough. But the Bible tells us very specifically that it's not. We are only going to grow in grace if we have partaken of His death, His burial, and His resurrection by faith and confession. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. So unless you have that personal relationship, not with a church... Not with a system, but with Jesus Christ. You're not going to punch your ticket. You're just not. Listen, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes... Resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, one confesses, resulting in salvation. So here's the message to you. This morning, Jesus is breaking the bread for us. He's offering it to us. Will we take it by believing Him and asking us if we're not already to be saved? Will we confess today that we are sinners and are hopeless without Jesus? Will we ask Him then to forgive our sins and invite Him to be our King, to be our Lord, to be our Savior? And for those of us who are already in relationship with Jesus as a follower, will we today ask Him to help us grow in grace? To become more like Him day by day. We've received His grace. Wouldn't you say it's amazing? His grace is amazing. Will we now become one whose spiritual growth has brought us to the place in our journey with Jesus that we begin thinking with a kingdom mindset, with kingdom values in mind? And if we're truly willing to do that, are we willing to confess Him by publicly acknowledging Him as our Lord and Savior? Here's the deal, friends. You're either going to acknowledge Him or you're going to be ashamed of Him. That's as simple as I can put it. You're either going to acknowledge who He is, what you believe about Him, or what He can do in your life, or you're going to be ashamed. I love verses 31 and 32 as the worship team comes. It says, Then their eyes were opened. They said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze? (laughs) I love that. Didn't we feel the burning inside us when he was revealing everything about himself that the scriptures taught? And when he revealed himself to them, verses 33 and 35 again say they, that very hour, They got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were gathered with them. 
who said the Lord has certainly been raised and he's appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Just one last thing that I want to say to you. They got up that same hour. Act now. Don't wait for a better opportunity. Don't wait until it's more convenient. Act now. When their eyes were open, they acted immediately. Was it convenient? Not on, not, not on your life. They just traveled seven miles home. And it was still the same distance back to where they came from. But that didn't stop them. What I'm talking about, friends, is an urgency. Will we today arise and obey, whether it's coming to Jesus for salvation or whether it's asking Jesus to help us grow in grace to become more and more like Him? Christ has risen. He's appeared to many. And they said He has changed our hearts when He opened our eyes. Wow. That's where the walk to Emmaus got its name. Hearts were made aware. Eyes were opened. And then the process for spiritual growth, then and only then, could begin to take place. Lord Jesus, today... I pray that our eyes have been opened as we have encountered You. I pray, dear God, that we understand that Your grace is available to each and every one of us and it's abundant and it's free. That grace can erase our past and can change our outlook for the future dramatically. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. You may be here this morning and you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You've never acknowledged Him before men. But you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart today. I'd love to have an opportunity to pray with you. And I fully understand that probably 99.9% .9 of us here this morning have already made that commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but this invitation is equally for you. Will you today say, yes, Lord, I surrender my expectations to you. I want to begin thinking with kingdom values in mind. I, I, I want to have my eyes opened to everything that you have for me, Jesus. I, in other words, Jesus, I want to I want to have every obstacle removed from my life that I've looked at as being an obstacle and understand that I can't grow spiritually until those obstacles are removed from my life. But I'm telling you today, Pastor, I want to grow in grace. I'd love to have the same opportunity to pray with you this morning. Would you stand with us with me, please?
there's no greater invitation as far as I'm concerned than the one, the words of this, this song. And I'm talking about the chorus, Jacob. I didn't tell you that ahead of time, sorry. There's no greater invitation than the words of this chorus. You're all I want. The operative, most important word in that statement is not want. It's all. You're all that I want. You're all I've ever needed.